0: Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special Audio Highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. How many of you have uh, read The Omnivore's Dilemma? Uh Uh-huh. How many of you have uh, changed your uh, eating habit as a result? (laughs) One hand. One hand. (laughs) Uh, Well, perhaps you'll be relieved to know that he has written a book called In Defense of Food, Michael yes. Pollan has. An Eater's Manifesto, which is often summed up by the little band around the lettuce, the head of lettuce on the, uh, the cover that says, Eat food, not too much, mostly plants. And if the plants, mostly the leaves. So have some more of the. Well, I just ate the root of the. the... <laughs> yeah. Please welcome Michael Pollan. How <laughs> <What's this guy? laughs> do you do? I see you. Who'd have thought that you'd need to write a book in defense of food? But this came out of an article you wrote for the the New York Times Magazine called Unhappy Meals.
1: Yeah, I wrote that last uh, January. And um, I know, I mean, my whole career over the last few years is absurd. If you you look back, I mean, a hundred years ago, you wouldn't have to write a book telling people where their food comes from, as I did in Omnivore's Dilemma. Nor would you now have to write a book telling people to eat food but here we are. <laughs> here we are. And uh, it puts food on the table, I bet. Uh, it does. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Good.
0: Uh, one, of, one of the things that interests me in your acknowledgements is that you, is you thank people who got in touch with you, not only after uh, The Omnivore's Dilemma came out, but also after the magazine article. And they gave you all kinds of, of tips and ideas. I mean I, I mean, I don't know, maybe some of them were rancorous, but a lot of them must have been laudatory. I mean, what was your sense? You know, was it, what did you learn from this correspondence you had?
1: Well, I did. This book really grew out of the conversation I I was having with readers, both in person and by email, since Omnivore's Dilemma. And um, I got in touch with the fact that people were still very confused about what to eat, and that they found the supermarket to be truly a treacherous landscape, and were looking for some guidance. But I also got lots of very uh, great tips. I remember getting one last time I was on the show, listening to the guest before me from uh, Bridges Larder. Uh, She said, um, pay more, eat less. And, I, and, the, and I actually, I talk about uh, You've got a little chapter heading, I a do. section heading. I do, and uh, so I've been collecting uh, advice from people, too. Um, because the premise of this book is that, you know, listening to scientists as a way to learn what to eat hasn't really served us well for the last 30 years. You call it, is that what you call nutritionism? Yes, nutritionism is this, is this ideology that, that has kind of infected all of us, in America anyway, that suggests that uh, food is about nutrients, eating is about health, Uh, Nutrients are divided into good and evil, and if you eat more of the good ones and fewer of the bad ones, you're going to live forever. And um, this is a very limited way to look at food. Uh, It overlooks the fact that there are many other good reasons to eat and that health should be a byproduct of eating well and enjoying food rather than the goal. Um, But that, you know, we have had other sources of wisdom about food long before the scientists came along to tell us, don't eat saturated fats, eat trans fats instead. You know, that was their last (laughs) very helpful tip uh, beginning in the 70s when they moved us off of butter and onto margarine. Um, But we've had culture. Uh, We've had culture for, you know, as long as we've been uh, a species uh, or or soon after that basically guided people uh, on how to eat. And in fact that there's more wisdom in culture. Uh, than there is right now in science. Science may figure it out at some point, but for now, uh, we should rely on culture. So, the, uh, so what I'm trying to do in this book is kind of collect uh, that kind of grandmother wisdom. And also try to
0: answer that question, I imagine, from, from readers to say,
1: okay, now what do I do? Yeah, and which I got a lot after, Omnivore's Dilemma. I mean, actually, I mean, what inspired the book was this response I kept hearing. People were about halfway through the book, and I would meet them, and they'd say, I'm afraid to finish your book. And that's troubling for a writer to hear. And um, I would say, why? And they say, every time I turn the page, there's something else I shouldn't be eating. uh, Or I can't stand to eat anymore. And I'm afraid if I get to the end, there'll be nothing left to eat. And And look at the author's photo, he's skinny as a bean. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't want my readers expiring. uh, So I, I figured I'd write a book to help them eat.
0: So the French, you know, have got a diet. Uh, it includes wine, it includes fats, it includes, uh, you know, good fats. I mean, there's clearly a combination of food that, that the French eat that leads them to have lower incidence of, of heart disease than say the American diet.
1: Yeah, we call it the American paradox. Uh, only Americans call it a paradox. We call it a paradox because they're eating all the saturated fat, these triple creme cheeses and foie gras and red wine. And um, they are healthier than we are, and how could this possibly be? Well, there are two, re- there are two theories. Uh, one could be that we're, we're not quite right about the saturated fat evil, our lipophobia, and maybe it isn't so bad. Um, and the other theory is that the way they eat, not just what they eat, yeah. the way they eat is very different. And as it turns out, they do have a d- very different culture around food. They, they eat small portions on small plates. They don't take seconds. They don't snack as a rule. Uh, they eat together at, at long, you know, uh, common meals. Um, Eating is a very social thing. With the result that they they eat less than we do, um, but they get more food experience, which is an interesting way to look at it, because they, uh, on fewer calories, they, you know, spend more time at the table and get more pleasure. And if you think about it, I mean, you really in your relationship to food, are you really looking for, you know, sheer amount, or are you looking for a kind of experience? And they figured out a way to to get the experience without lots of the calories.
0: Well, part of that also, I think, has to do with sort of the economic basis of the, of the countries, you know, and, and in the U.S., I mean, there's a, you know, like, for instance, the corn industry or the potato industry have an interest in Putting massive amounts of corn or potatoes or french fries in, in front of us, you know, the whole supersize, supersize me phenomenon. But, but the other point of that is that that's sort of sitting at table. If, if, you, if you sit at a restaurant in Europe, you're not bothered. Nobody brings you the check until you ask for it. You're almost sort of ignored. You're, there's time between the courses. There, but if you eat in an American restaurant, there's an economic incentive to turn the table over, even at top restaurants. You know, how many more people can we get in here? Let's rush them along. You know, as soon as dessert comes, the check arrives. There's That's no right. there's no yes. lingering time. There's no conversation. There's the, the meal becomes rushed, forced. It's like force-feeding a goose.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it's true. We, I mean, in, in Europe, you own the table for the evening, pretty much, uh, when you go to a restaurant. I mean, our whole food system has been organized around quantity rather than quality. And it goes back to the way we organize our agricultural policies. We pay farmers. For every bushel they can grow, rather than for the quality of the food they're growing or, or how well they're taking care of the land, and then our marketing of food follows that. You know, uh, one of the uh, supermarket chains, their slogan is "pile it high and sell it cheap." Um, so we're, we're really which, which one is that? Is that something you can say? Uh, I don't even remember which one it is. But pile it high and sell it cheap. Sell it cheap, yeah. And now that's an interesting attitude toward food. Um, and we we think that price is really the key factor in food. Um, not if you come to the Ferry Plaza farmer's market, but, <laughs> but if you shop most other places. Um, and, uh, and that's an odd idea, too, because we understand value in just about anything else we buy. We understand that a good car costs more than a crummy car, and a good you know, sport jacket costs more than a crummy sport jacket. But when it comes to food, we feel, oh, you know, an egg is an egg is an egg, and it should all be really cheap. Um, So, uh, I think rebuilding the food system around some sense of quality is very, very important. But Americans, of course, have, we've always been fast eaters and careless eaters. I mean, you you look at uh, accounts written by Europeans coming here in the 19th century. They were disgusted by the way we ate. We would just like, you know, gobble food down and run. And we spend less time eating than most people on the planet. You know, there was a tradition, I think, of the European car business of being shocked the idea of putting cup holders in cars. Mm. It's like, what do you mean you're eating while you're driving? That's not when you eat. The French are disgusted by car eating, actually. I mean, when, when, they, when they see that in America. Uh, but we're now eating uh, a fifth of our meals in cars in this country. So the concept of the meal is on its way to extinction uh, in this country. And um, you, 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 meant, you mentioned Wendell Berry. You say that eating is an act of agriculture. Yeah, eating is an agricultural act, which is, which is uh, his idea in a wonderful essay. Um, and uh, he he kind of gets this. And you know, this conversation we're having about food today was really, we're picking up the thread of a conversation that began in the 70s. Uh, he and Francis Moore LePay and Joan Gussow and there was a whole group of writers then who were starting this conversation, taking another, a hard look at the industrial food system, recognizing it wasn't serving us well. Um, Interestingly, they were starting to talk this way before we had a public health crisis around food, which we do now. Obesity and diabetes and heart disease and, and, uh, and cancers. Tied, you know, four of the top 10 killers we know are tied to the way people eat, the, the, this thing called the Western diet. And um, so there's a lot more urgency to that conversation now because, um, because our food system is really making us very sick. Uh, how do you teach your son uh, to eat? Well, that's been a challenge, Um, and that's one of the reasons that I got sensitized to these issues, because when he was young, he's 15 now, he was a really bad eater. Uh, He really didn't like most food. He only liked white foods, essentially. He wore black and ate white. And, and, you know, my wife and I worked very hard on um, exposing him to new foods, introducing new foods, and uh, it was very frustrating for a long time. We found, though, one of the keys is cooking with him. Um, that you know he's interested in cooking, and when we can do that with him, <laughs> he's willing to try things, and gardening, too. He would eat things in the garden that he would never eat in the kitchen or at the table. He'd eat broccoli, he'd eat peas, and that's how he discovered vegetables. So I think if you acquaint children with the, the fundamental processes of producing food, which is to say growing it and preparing it, it uh, demystifies it, because there's a, there's a certain fear. They have this built-in... Um, uh, almost gag reflex that we have. You know, we're neophobic when it comes to food. Um, there's a fear of the new because the new is often dangerous in the state of nature. You know, the first time somebody tries a mushroom, who knows what's going to happen? Or, or an oyster? Or an oyster? Exactly, the classic case. So, so trying new foods is a is an anxious act for the human animal, um, fundamentally, and and for my my son, it was particularly anxious. So, if you can. Um, Try a very little bit of it. If you can sample it in the garden, if you can, you know, ta- have a taste while you're cooking, and see that, you know, underneath that sauce is something recognizable, um, suddenly it's somewhat demystified and uh, less fearful. What, what, what was your upbringing around food? I had a mother uh, who was a wonderful cook, um, and but I also had three sisters who were vegetarians, and um, so that was a challenge for all of us. Um, so she often would end up making two things for dinner every night. Um, But she she loved to cook, and we would have, um, you know, she would take us on this culinary world tour every week. You know, we'd have Italian food on Monday and beef stroganoff on Tuesday, and, you know, she was always trying, it was was the 60s, and the very cosmopolitan era in American cooking. Um, And I remember her saying, too, she was also very, you know, up to date on the latest nutritional science, and she kind of fell for the whole margarine scam. But the whole time she was, Giving us the margarine, she says, "I know one day they're going to find out butter's better than margarine." And she- I, I still remember that ad campaign
0: that was, was, "You may think it's butter, but it's not." And and I, that's how I always heard it. That's how I always heard it. It was, it was just, I could I could never get around to margarine after hearing this ad that they ran for it.
1: You know. Well, if more. People had heard it the way you did. We'd all be better off, and we would have saved hundreds of thousands of cases of heart disease. <laughs> it was uh, it was an amazing thing. Also,
0: the—the uh, the idea of um, eating eating uh, less reminds me of a little joke I heard. <laughs> it was not it was just so much. It was, uh, remember, one egg is enough. Anyway, <laughs> I'll have to remember that. <laughs> um, uh, that that uh, that that brought my uh, my 12-year-old me to our knees of, of laughter but um uh the um uh, in in eating this i mean one of one of the aspects of, of food history that comes up is is how in
1: eating this or reading this sorry
0: did you say in eating this or in reading this no in reading this oh, yeah. one of the aspects i i, I consumed your book <laughs> i may have said eating uh is is that the uh if if there's a recommendation made To avoid a certain food, it isn't directly said for various political reasons. For instance, you know, the FDA wouldn't say, eat less red meat, they'd say, eat fewer saturated fats. And what that then led to was this strange campaign of marketing where foods were produced and marketed with the
1: idea that they were lower in saturated
0: fats because that was good. But that was not really what was meant, as I understand it.
1: No, what happened was, actually, it goes back to the 70s, and and, uh, Senator George McGovern uh, had a uh, Senate Select Committee on Nutrition, and they, they set out to give us some dietary guidelines. And one of them was very straightforward. It was eat less red meat. But the industry came down on him like a ton of bricks. There was this firestorm of criticism, and he was forced, at, uh, under industry lobbyist pressure, to rewrite them. So he rewrote, and this is when nutritionism really begins in America, he rewrites those guidelines, choose meats that will lower your saturated fat intake. Now, that's convenient because it really makes no sense to anybody, <laughs> and, um, and, but also it's affirmative. And and, and that set the the pattern. You can't say eat less of anything if you're the government, uh, because some industry will be upset. But you can say eat more of something that has less of a certain nutrient, partly because it's obscure. Um, But partly because you can always rejigger. If you're the food industry, you can always rejigger the nutrients. And after that, they started breeding, you know, uh, pigs that had less saturated fat. The new white meat, you remember that campaign? And they tasted like running shoes, but um, (laughs) they had less saturated fat. So you wanted, you always, uh, the industry prefers to speak in terms of nutrients uh, because it gives them the edge. They They can always, you know, dial up the protein, dial down the carbs, whatever the latest theory is. And I I just think it's a very destructive way of thinking about food. Uh, Food is more than the sum of its nutrients. Every time we've tried to take out the nutrient that supposedly was so good or so bad, it hasn't worked as well. You know, we take beta carotene out of the carrots, and we think because carrots are somewhat protective against cancer that beta carotene should be too. But in supplement form, it doesn't work. So there's something more going on in the soul of a carrot we don't understand. And nutrition science, as as I kind of, Try, got tried to get to the bottom of what do we know what, what we don't know about food, they don't know that much. It's a very young science. It's it's kind of where surgery was in 1650. You know, it's <laughs> it's it's interesting. It's promising, but are you ready to get on the table? Uh, I, I say wait. I say wait, wait a few hundred years. Wait, wait for that sur
0: moment. Yeah. So uh, when when you uh, when you when you issue these uh, when, when when you write these books you. And uh, do you hear from food lobbyists, from corporations? Do, uh, are you invited to speak, to, say, to a General Foods uh, board of directors retreat?
1: <laughs> well, I hear uh, in, in a negative vein from people like the Corn Refiners Association. And if I say something, if I take the name of high fructose corn syrup in vain on your show, I will get a letter saying, uh, you know, one, um, well, you know, our product is really no worse than sugar, um, which may well be true. And uh, Or, no, we don't, we don't subsidize high fructose corn syrup in this country, we subsidize corn. So they, they kind of listen and watch and try to correct me if, I, if they think I'm straying too far. I did recently get invited to speak to the National Pork Producers Council after a piece in which I, I said that the, the cause of this community resistant uh, staph infection that's around has been tied to the way we're feeding antibiotics to pigs. And so I don't know what that's about, whether I'll ever leave that meeting alive or not, um, but we'll have to see. What about uh, cloning animals? Well, that's just been approved this week. Yeah. Um, well, approved but accepted? I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, well, approved in the sense the FDA has right. signed off on it. I don't think any eaters have actually signed off right. on this, and I doubt they're very eager to. Um, I don't think we're going to have a lot of cloned meat in our future. Um, I, the reason they're doing it is so they can clone those, you know, their best stud bull or stud chicken and, um, uh, and then put, throw it into the food supply when they're all done. The, my, the greater concern, I think, with cloned meat is not the healthfulness of the food, um, I would worry about when you have someday a whole chicken house or feedlot full of uh, genetically identical animals that they will be so uh, you know, vulnerable to infection and to being wiped out by a single microbe that you will need such pharmaceuticals to keep them going. I mean, so many antibiotics. There's a reason we have sex. Well, there's several reasons we have sex, but <laughs> there's a re- we have sex to, to create variety and to stay ahead of, of the, the microbes, the, the parasites. And if, so if an animal stops evolving because we're cloning it and all its parasites and diseases continue to evolve, it will be wiped out. So from a biological point of view, it's insane to clone animals. And, uh, and I think they'll learn this very quickly. I just hope it's not at the expense of some very important antibiotic we all need for our health.
0: Uh, when you when you go uh, when you go shop, uh, how how much of a label reader are you?
1: Well, I read labels for laughs. Um, I mean, I really nutrition content of M&Ms, for instance. Yeah, right. yeah I mean everything. I mean, you know the, the the cocoa puffs now are heart healthy and, and whole grain goodness. And you know this is candy essentially. You know, with a message for the parents. So, I, you know, one of the tips I offer in the book is if you're concerned about your health, don't buy any foods that carry health claims. These are the le- least healthy foods in the supermarket. Why? Well, to, to carry a health claim, first, you need a package to put it on. So it's a packaged, processed food. Uh, and second, the health claims are usually based on pretty sketchy science. And third, the healthiest food in the supermarket is all that quiet produce you know, that says nothing about its health. So as I say in the book, you know, don't take the silence of the yams as a sign <laughs> that they have nothing useful to say about health. They're much healthier. than. I, w- I want to see one egg is enough in your next book. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. So so,
0: so you've got this very clever... Uh, did you come up with the, the cover design with the lettuce, with the, the message, no, eat food? No, I
1: didn't. Uh, I, I came up with a little haiku. Um, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Which, you know, you don't have to buy this book, because if you have those seven words, you know everything. <laughs> Although when you stop to think about it... Isn't that a health claim on the outside of this book? I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> But when you stop to think about it, it's, it's no longer so easy to distinguish the food from the edible food-like substances that are you know, taking over the supermarket.
0: What was the phrase I heard you know, for, for like candy bars or nutrition bars? I think the business term, industrial terms, extruded food product.
1: Uh, yeah, th- those are extruded food products. Well, yeah. cereal is an extruded f- food product, too. So a lot of the book is, is is helping guide people to distinguish the food from the edible food-like substances. So I, I have suggestions about how to shop in the supermarket, basically stay to the peripheries, because uh, it's on the perimeter where they, they have the food that's been least disturbed by industrialization, you know, the, the produce, the meat, the fish, the dairy. Although even in dairy, there's a few things sneaking in. Um, don't buy anything you're... Great grandmother wouldn't recognize as food, and just perform that mental exercise when you're in the supermarket. When she picks up the Gogurt portable yogurt tubes, does she recognize that as food? I, I kind of think she doesn't know what you do with those things. There was a uh, uh, in in the botany
0: of desire. Uh, you, you described corn. How corn has been a very successful product, and 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 I wonder if you. Whenever you've since walked into a field of corn, heard
1: whisperings or rumblings, <laughs> they try to get that Michael Pollan guy. He's given our secret away to the world. Uh, yeah, their, their, their quest for world domination. Yeah. Um, it's true. Uh, no, I'm on good terms with the corn plant. Um, it's the Corn Refiners Association <laughs> I have problems with. Corn as a food is, is great. Um, it's corn as an industrial raw material that I have a problem with. Corn is the basis for processed food. I mean, corn is really the building block of the fast food nation. And uh, corn, you know, when you turn it into high fructose corn syrup, your body doesn't know what to do with it, and it creates all sorts of problems.
0: And what about what, what, what were biofuels? going How are they going to shift this market these, the, the way food is, agriculture Agriculture is practiced.
1: They already are. I mean, uh, we are th- we're driving up th- this, this fad for biofuels, which makes no sense from any, any conceivable point of view, except if you're uh, a fuel company looking for an alternative liquid to put into cars. Um, is, it's already driving up the cost of food. We, we're setting up a situation where people with SUVs in our country will take food out of the mouths of people living in places like Malaysia. Um, where, uh, you know, because whoever can command those calories, uh, will get them. And if we want those calories for our cars, people are not going to have those calories to eat. And, uh, so it's very dangerous, uh, and will lead to, to more hunger in the world. Not to mention it isn't really a green technology. I mean, the amount of environmental devastation being, uh, wrecked in the name of, uh, biofuels, uh, planting monocultures of corn and not rotating anymore, cutting down tropical rainforests to plant palm oil, um, using all the fossil fuel you you need to grow the crops to become the replacement for fossil fuel, you end up with a very small incremental gain in energy. Uh, so these are these are not green technologies, and uh, and you know so I worry about that, but I, I worry more about what it does to to, uh, to the hungry in the world.
0: The book is called In Defense of Food, An Eater's Manifesto by Michael Pollan. Follows on to the uh, omnivore's dilemma. Are you going to be uh, stuck in the food world, do you think, for a while? Or are you going to break out?
1: <laughs> uh, well, I have a lot of other interests. so uh, I, you know, I'm still very interested in food, and there's a lot of work to be done. But uh, there are other things I want to write about, too.
0: Anything you want to talk about at the moment? No. no. <laughs> Michael Pollan. I haven't figured it out. Michael Pollan,
1: thank you very much. Thank you, Seth. Thank
0: you. Great to have you here on West Coast Live. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.